Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What's it like trying to run an airline these days? I mean, people want to travel, but making sure they travel smoothly is a huge challenge. Airline wants to sell tickets, but can you staff the planes to get people where they want to go? Well, the industry is facing huge upheaval right now. Heathrow Airport, one of the largest in the world, announced a two-month cap on daily passenger traffic this morning. They are asking airlines to stop selling tickets for the busy summer travel season. So with all of that going on, if you run an airline, how do you expand your business? Is this even the time to make that happen? Well, joining us now is Stephen Jones, the CEO and president of Flair Airlines. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for being here. Good morning. It's a tough time right now, it seems like, for the airline industry. How is Flair doing? Yes, it's a, it's a really tough time for the whole industry, as you noted, you know, and it's not just in Canada. It's uh, it's right around the world. I think we're seeing airlines uh, really struggling with the return from, from COVID. Um, with respect to Flair, we're doing a, um, you know, we've been growing quickly. We've added another three aircraft in the last uh, weeks to make our fleet now uh, 18 aircraft, brand new Boeing 737 Maxes. So so we're growing quickly, but we're certainly not out of the uh, woods in terms of staffing. It's very tough out there. Yeah, is the demand there? So would you say people want to buy tickets, people want to fly? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people have been locked up for two years. They've been missing out on those uh, opportunities to meet their friends and family, to go and visit and look around this beautiful country. Um, and the system isn't isn't keeping up. Okay, so how do you deal with that then as a, a growing or a want-to-be-growing airline? Then how do you make that balance between you want to sell those tickets, but you don't have the capacity to take everybody on? So we have to be very careful about the way that we schedule our, our flights. Um, we like to try and keep the aircraft moving because they're very expensive uh, machines. Um, but we've, we've scheduled in a way that we can uh, make the flights work. We've had to cancel quite a number of flights, and we apologize to uh, any customers impacted by those cancellations. Um, we feel it. Uh, we've been doing some at short notice, which is obviously bad for people who've got um, got plans and places they need to get to. Uh, but we really try and minimize the impact on customers and, and just keep the aircraft moving. Right. But you're saying like you're also, there's some customers who are obviously going to be irritated. Do you worry about that, though? Do you worry that you're turning people off of airline travel? I worry immensely about that. It's um, it's not the way we should be running the business or the industry. Um, but as I say, it's it's not really just a flair issue. It's impacting everyone. Uh, you mentioned the Heathrow cancellations uh, of 10,000 flights. Um, Schiphol and Amsterdam have restricted their movements through that airport by 15%. And um, we saw Air Canada cut 10% of their flights through, um, through Toronto Pearson a couple of weeks ago. So um, it is, uh, it's really tough out there. Right. And I, I know that with Flair, the whole is, the idea, the issue is that you are, you know, the ultra low fare 
airline. Is there a lot of demand for that here in Canada? Hello? Oh, we seem to have lost Stephen there for a second. We had him. Uh, Stephen is the CEO of Flair Airlines. Uh, That is an ultra-low-cost airline here in Canada, which has been trying to, you know, get on more passengers, sell more airfares. We have him back there. Hi, Stephen. Sorry, we lost you there for a second. Hey, sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. That's okay. Listen, so I was asking you, you know, Flair is the ultra-low-fare airline. Is there room for that right now, then? Is that there is a lot of demand for that right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Canada has suffered for too long uh, with having just two airlines effectively and fares have been way higher than they are in anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, you take Europe, you take the US, you take Asia, Australia, if fares aren't as high as what you get here. I think uh, what we call big air has really um, had control on the market and uh, and flares a challenger and, and we get a lot of pushback by the other uh, competitors, but we're here to shake things up and bring affordable travel to all Canadians. Right. So that, that's the idea, right? But how do you do that with the staffing issues? So can you can you run a low-cost airline and at the same time attract the staff that you need to make all that happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not about uh, about the staffing and cost. They don't go together. We pay our people well and, and, um, uh, and we run the airline just like any other airline. We just keep all of the other bits of waste out of our system so we don't have lounges or frequent flyer schemes or interconnecting flights or anything simple business model um, and that's quite separate from the staffing issue right so do people understand that because you also you fly out of smaller airports as well right you fly out of a lot of flight out of abbotsford uh sort of the smaller airports in some cities and are people willing to do that oh yeah yeah i mean we've had great success out of abbotsford we were really well supported by uh, by Palm and the team out at the Abbotsford Airport, um, Kitchener Waterloo, we, uh, we've really grown the business there. But we also fly out of Vancouver, Maine. We fly out of Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, Pearson. So it's a mixture of airports. So where do you see the industry going for the rest of this year? Obviously, this summer is going to be pretty bumpy, but do you think things will smooth out after that? Oh, yes, this will pass. There's no doubt this will pass. Um, so as it settles down, um, we will have the opportunity to... Uh, to hire more people, people will be coming back to work more, and um, this will pass. At the end of it, you'll have an industry that's way more competitive because Flair or any other um, of the new airlines will be bringing that low-cost offering and just getting people to travel more. Right, so the idea is getting people used to almost like stripping flying down, right? If you don't want the perks, if you just want to get to where you want to go, there's going to be options for that? Yeah, and for making travel a lot more spontaneous. So when it costs you $800 one way to fly across the country, um, people don't do that at uh, the drop of a hat. But when it's $150 or $49, um, people can be a lot more spontaneous about their travel plans. They can go and see that concert of the band that they've always wanted to go and see. They can be in Montreal or they can go to that, um, uh, you know, visit the relatives two, three, four times a year instead of once every two years. So so we're trying to encourage a culture of, of much more sort of spontaneous and free travel around the, around the country. All right. Well, I know people want to do that. We'll see what happens with it. Stephen, thank you so much for your time this morning.
A pleasure. It's a beautiful day here in Vancouver. It really is for once. Thank you. Yes, we've had a good stretch this last week or so. That is Stephen Jones, CEO and president of Flair Airlines. Now, they are the ultra low cost airline, and it would seem challenging right now to grow their business when airports and other airlines are cutting capacity because of all the issues that they are having. They say, Stephen says that they feel like things are going to smooth out after this summer and things will be okay. But I wonder about that. Is is this the time that people want to get on that cheap flight? Are you willing to pay for that cheap ticket, even if you know it's a smaller airport, different airport, and you run the risk of all these hassles and challenges at the airport? This is Mornings with Simi. Now, Raji Sohal and I have a lot in common but not necessarily when it comes to music. So I'm almost afraid to ask, Raji, are you an... Oh, no. (laughs) Should I not? I won't. You're right. I won't. Let's Let's not go there. Okay, I'm not going to because I don't... I don't think I can handle the disappointment this morning. Anyway, probably. probably. Let's talk. Let's. You're right. Let's change the subject entirely. Since we're talking entertainment, though, let's talk TV. I'm excited about the Emmys this morning. I don't know why, but I do love the Emmys because I, I always keep a mental list. I think many people do of the TV shows that I want to watch or TV shows that I should watch, and this usually helps me with that. Yeah, the nominations are coming out this morning. A couple of hours, you can start streaming the announcement from the official Emmys website about the nominations for this year. But you know what? It's weird. It's really weird because there are some what are going to feel like obvious omissions, but they're not snubs. They're just down to some shows that seem like they should be on the list will not be nominated because of when they aired. And the reason is because the eligibility period set by the TV Academy for the 2022 awards state that the time that the series aired matters. Um, and many titles don't fall within that uh, ideal date period because they experienced pandemic delays. And so those delays meant uh, they obviously ended up airing way, way later. So there's some obvious uh, shows there that just are not going to be not going to be nominated. Like, right. for example, Netflix's The Crown, which I loved. I loved every element of that series, and that's not going to be on there. Neither is uh, HBO's Westworld or Hulu's Handmaid's Tale, which although I loved, I don't want to ever see again. <laughs> <laughs> it's so disturbing. It's like a little yeah. too close to home now for people. <laughs> but then it also means that other ones will be in the running, like uh, Succession, which I know we both enjoyed, right? I do that's love Succession. Yes. Yeah. And only murders in the building, which love that show. Do you? Yeah. See, it didn't hook me right away, but I thought it should hook me because I love the cast. Right. And so I stayed with it for a few episodes. Maybe I watched like four episodes and then I was like, I just it's not getting me. Oh, see, I find it it's kind of quirky and cute. I don't expect it to be anything serious, but because I just love Steve Martin, I thought, oh, yeah, this is enjoyable. That's all I really got out of it. It wasn't like Succession that blew my mind, right, when you watch it. Also, I think Squid Squid Game up for eligibility this year. Did you watch Squid Game? I tried to. <laughs> too much. Not in the, it's too much for me. <laughs> I'm not in that mind frame right now. Things have a, have to be less mm, bleak for me to watch right. them right now. Here's yeah. the thing, though. I have been watching for, you know, since the very beginning, since it started, the show Yellowstone. And oh, I love Yellowstone. And every year I've been disappointed because I'm like, why don't they nominate Yellowstone? Like, Yellowstone's a great show. And I feel like this might be the year for that show because it certainly seemed to exponentially become popular in the past year. 
Yeah, and so Yellowstone is, in I think, likely to be in the running because they're one of these shows that will benefit from the period, the eligibility period of when it aired. So it'll be in the running, and critics love it. Um, we're probably going to see Euphoria, I think, there as well. Maybe Barry, which is a very bizarre show, not for everybody, but I I've heard it. of this. Yeah, and then the morning show, which was for me, uh, I. I you didn't care for it? No. And given that I used to work on a morning show, maybe yeah. I just had higher expectations. I just, it, I did, did not do anything for me. Oh, that's so interesting. So I loved the morning show. I loved uh, the, just the constant drama of it. Uh, and then things accelerated. You didn't know where they were going to go. Um, and then it also, to me, Simi, it hearkened in many ways back to like, uh, drama from like the 90s or early 2000s. Like the production value to me seemed kind of old in this familiar and comfortable way. Mm-hmm. I, I loved watching it. I loved Killing Eve. Uh, Stranger Things, I think, is going to clean up. So I I am guessing that's going to be on the nomination list today. And I never I never got into Ozark, but I am guessing Ozark will be in the running too. I watched the first season of Ozark, loved it, got mostly through the second season, and I just the relentlessness of it. I thought I can't take this anymore. And so you gave up. And I, and I know I should finish it because apparently the last season was good, and I might get around to doing that. But there's so many other great shows right now. Like I'm watching The Old Man with Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow, which I absolutely love, and uh, there's just so many great shows out there to watch. I still feel like this is a great time. Like, what's the last great show that you watched? I know you love Barry. Anything else? Uh, you know what? Succession has stayed with me. So many shows, I'll watch them. And then afterwards, I'm thinking, what was that show even about? I don't really recall the details of it. But Succession, I have literally th- thought about scenes, like a specific scene over and over again and, and wondered like, wow, why was that so impactful? Why did that work so much? And I think the characters in it and the writing um, – People say it's a drama, but to me, it comes across as a comedy, albeit a really dark comedy. Uh, it stayed with me, and I don't want to like it. It's about the world's worst people. It really uh, is. But <laughs> I, yeah, but I really, really enjoyed it, and I cannot wait. Out of all the series, that's the one that I cannot oh. wait to watch more of. Well, I'm currently down the Westworld rabbit hole, which oh. it really is. Like I say that as a joke, but it's also very true because you, nobody ever understands what's going on with that show. And it's like a puzzle. So uh, I'm enjoying that. But yeah, lots to look forward to. I hope some of my favorite shows are going to be nominated. But Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. All right. So you know what Raji and I are watching. What are you watching? What's the last show you just watched and loved and would love to share? Because I'm always looking for good recommendations on that. Simi at dot. This is Mornings with Simi. So this morning we've been talking about airlines and airfares in particular. News out of London today is that Heathrow Airport has asked airlines to cut their summer schedules because they said they are going to impose a maximum of 100,000 passengers going through Heathrow for the summer. And that means they said some airlines have responded by cutting back flights, others have not. So they're putting this cap into place. Now that's huge as the airline industry is trying to sell more tickets to, you know, brown back from the pandemic. But what about the issue of cheaper air travel too? Earlier this morning, we were speaking with the CEO of Flair Airlines. This is one of the cheapest airlines to book a flight with. They're trying to really gain a foothold here in Canada. But there's a new opinion piece that we were reading about in the Globe and Mail that argues this obsession that we have with booking the cheapest flight possible and people being able to fly anywhere for a cheap price is what's causing 
all the current chaos at airports out there. So let's talk to the person who has written this and find out more about that. Ashley Nunez joins us now, research fellow at Harvard Law School. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. What made you want to write this? What made you want to put that out there? Well, I think there is a tendency to assume that Canadians can have everything for nothing. And our politicians certainly seem to sell that message to us. But if you look at the economics of how businesses work, that simply isn't true. What do you mean? Well, there is no free lunch. Um, there are trade-offs that are inevitable in life. Um, and the, air, the aviation industry is no different. To the extent that you get a cheap fare, that savings is coming from somewhere. Very often, it's coming from lower wages that workers incur. It's coming from higher productivity that the airline demands of its customers. And all those things taken together is good for consumers if all consumers care about is a low fare. But it doesn't necessarily create very attractive working conditions for frontline employees. So would you say perhaps has something changed during the pandemic? We talk about the labor market and how it really is right now, you know, for employees to find jobs out there because there's so many of them and people are changing careers. So is that time to then rethink how we approach the airline industry? I think that what the pandemic has shown is that many of the working conditions that airport workers and airline workers have been subjected to over the years are the types of conditions that don't necessarily make them want to stick around for long. And when something better comes along, they will jump ship, and they should jump ship if they are rational economic actors, which is precisely what we see occurring during, um, or rather in the aftermath of the pandemic. This always happens, though, after a kind of financial crisis, doesn't it? Like we saw this happen after uh, 9-11, readjustment of the airline industry. We saw it after 2008. Is this just another kind of readjustment in the industry? I think that's a fair characterization. It's important to remember that the recruiting challenges the aviation industry currently has are no different than the recruiting challenges we have seen in other industries. For example, with Uber, you know, Uber lost a lot of its drivers during the pandemic when demand for Uber rides plummeted significantly. And in the aftermath, when you know, demand increased, uh, Uber has struggled to ensure that it has a sufficient supply of drivers. Why? Because the drivers they had before went out, they found other jobs, and they realized that the working conditions that they had in those new jobs were better than working for Uber. Okay, so then do you think the upheaval we're seeing right now in the airline industry is a market correction? I do, very much so. Um, you know, Presumably there will be a new equilibrium point. There will be, I hope, better working conditions for workers. But as long as there is pressure to lower fares um, and to give the public what we want, which are low fares, um, without asking questions as to why and how these fares are made possible, um, you will invariably see some degree of attrition whenever there's some sort of market shock. 
Okay, so if that means that airlines are going to have to readjust what services they can deliver for the economy that they can provide, does that mean that airfares will stay high? Uh, well, if you look at the statements that many airline CEOs have made, the general sentiment is that airfares are high, but the sentiment is also that airfares will likely be higher, um, as particularly as we see volatility in the oil markets. I personally happen to think that flying is far too cheap. You know, adjusted for inflation, flying today is much, much cheaper than it was in the 1950s or the 1960s. And that's certainly good for Canadians looking to go from coast to coast and looking to travel internationally. But it's not so good for the airline industry. This is an industry that has historically lost more money than it's made. A right, business but, exists to make money, um, and raising airfares is a surefire way to do it. But, you know, they the, with the deregulation that came in the 1980s, it resulted in all these new airlines and all this competition, and, you know, it's still expensive, and now you're saying, what, they're not even actually making money? That's correct. I mean, if you look at what the margins look like for airlines, they are relatively slim. Many passengers will argue, well, why do airlines then nickel and dime us to them? You know, these are airlines that are making yeah. billions of dollars. These are airlines that are making billions of dollars. The reason why you are nickel and dime to debt is precisely because airlines want to make money. There are somewhere in the order of about 250, 260 airlines worldwide. Only about nine or 10 of them are actually profitable. And the majority of those profits are generated by charging you and me for things like a bottle of water or for our luggage or the middle seat. Yeah, I hate that middle seat. Nobody wants that middle seat. Uh, so actually, does that, does that mean that we as passengers are going to have to rethink our expectations? I think if you look at differentiation in the market, and you look at how airlines are unbundling fares. You mentioned Flair um, you know, in your introduction. Flair is one of the airlines that has unbundled its fares, so you get what you pay for. Um, it's certainly one way of ensuring that there is some degree of calibration. It's a way of ensuring that passengers know that when they pay 35 bucks for a ticket to go from Toronto to Vancouver, they are literally paying for a space on that plane and nothing more. Like that Ryanair mentality. Very much so. But, you know, people fault Ryanair. But Ryanair is also arguably one of the most profitable companies in the airline industry. And its secret is cheap fares. In fact, if its fares weren't so cheap, probably people probably would not fly that particular carrier. But they have discovered, you know, the secret sauce, which is keep fares low, keep airplanes full, and keep airplanes flying all the time. All right. Interesting. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. That's Ashley Nunez, a research fellow at Harvard Law School, talking about an opinion piece that he's written where he argues that our obsession with cheaper and cheaper airline flights is causing a lot of this chaos that we're seeing in airports and for airlines right now, and that maybe the entire industry is in the midst of a rethink or a reshaping, similar to what we saw after, you know, 9-11 or 2008. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. 
I know a lot of us would like to think that COVID is gone. It is not. It's still out there happening. Lots of cases growing in many cases, right? Yet another wave that's happening. And there's still discussion about BC's whole booster strategy. We know it's not coming until the fall, but do we need to rethink that? So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So joining us now is Dr. Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for being back with us. Of course. Now, I know you've been talking about this recently because the BC government has said we're going to emphasize this fall. Do you think that's wrong? Uh, uh, Yes. I mean, I think we should emphasize the summer while we're in the summer. And we have a wave right here, right now. And I think that should be our focus for the next little while. Yes, we have to plan ahead. And the government absolutely needs to plan ahead for the fall. But I think they're sending mixed messages about, oh, don't worry about COVID now. And I think that is a concern. Okay, what, what kind of mixed messages? Well, I think it sends a message uh, that there's no need to get a booster now. You don't have to really worry. Maybe infections aren't that bad right now. And that's just not the case. We have a lot of circulating Omicron at the moment, and it's rising with this new BA5 variant spreading really quickly. How bad is it? So what do we need to know about this variant? Well, so this variant is one of the Omicron variants, and and that's generally good news because Omicron largely affects the upper airways. It transmits better, probably because of that. It doesn't get so deep-seated in your lungs, Um, fewer intubation cases, fewer deaths per infection. All that stuff is great news. But on the other hand, so many cases, so many, it's so easily transmitted that a lot of people get it. And that has led to a large number of hospitalizations and deaths, almost as many during this Omicron wave as in previous waves. What about this BA5 wave? I, I can't tell, we can't tell, the modelers can't tell yet about how high it's going to be, but we can tell that it, it's spreading really rapidly, as, um, as rapidly, even slightly more rapidly than the BA2 spread. Okay, and that's fast, right? Because we really yeah. saw it speeding up. Has, what do you think about people's attitude, though, towards this, Dr. Otto? Like, are people, are we taking it seriously enough? You know, I think long term, we really have to get to a place where we respond, that we pay attention to how many infections are in the community and respond accordingly, that we mask up when cases are rising like they are now that we get boosted, especially uh, all of the boosters that we're eligible for, um, especially if we are at risk of severe illness or have a loved one that we want to protect. Okay, so then what should we be doing? I I know people have forgotten all Mm -hmm. about mask wearing and all that kind of stuff, though, but in in your mind, what kind of approach should we be taking here? So, you know, I don't think we've maybe um, talked about um, the difference with Omicron. Omicron really gets into our cells better and it is better at transmitting through the air. And what that means is those, those kind of loosely fitting masks, they really don't work against Omicron. That's, we have to ratchet up our masks. N95s are a good way to go. Um, and make sure that they're tight fitting and so that they, the air doesn't get around um, the mask. Any place that does not have good ventilation and that is crowded, uh, and I would include buses, should be, we should be masking up. And we should be masking up to protect others as well as ourselves. Masks work two ways. <laughs> they prevent the virus getting out, and they prevent the virus getting in. Do you see any of that happening out there, though? You know, I, I think that um, the modeling can kind of serve as, as a warning sign about what things are coming, and that's why I think it's important for us to get on the radio and say, 
look, this is on the rise. Um, as we see, so we've seen cases starting to rise in BC, um, and that will lead to hospitalizations rising in the next week. We're seeing it already in Quebec and in Ontario. So I think, I, I do think that people uh, are are willing to help out and are willing to take the measures needed to protect others. We saw that with the Omicron, the first Omicron wave when back in late December, you know what? The main changes were actually the public collectively acting, doing the things, wearing the masks um, and and, uh, making sure they were in well-ventilated areas. It's actually about what the people do, what we do together. That's the big if, right? Uh, Dr. Otto, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Sarah Otto is a professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Premier's meetings in Victoria continue today. Once again, the major topic will be funding for health care and how to get the federal government to commit more money. Meanwhile, Canadian nursing leaders say they have sent a message to the Premier's that patients and nurses are suffering through a dire staffing crisis, they say. They believe that threatens the sustainability of public health care. So we know that Premier Horgan has been very vocal on this front and in the meetings with the other premiers from right across the country yesterday, they emphasized that point and they say it's about addressing these health care challenges. What Canadians want us to do is to sit down like adults and figure out how we resurrect publicly funded health care. Patient-centered care is where we need to get to. In order to do that, we need to have a human resource strategy right across the country so that Quebec is not poaching from BC, BC is not poaching from Manitoba. We have a national plan to recruit and retain and train the next generation of healthcare workers. Well, let's talk more about some of those proposals. Joining us now is Linda Silas, head of the Canadian Federation of Nurses. Linda, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. What do you think of some of the things that you have heard coming from the Premier's meetings this week? Well, yesterday morning when we met with uh, 11 of them, uh, it was an excellent meeting. They heard our message. We need to stop the bleed. We really need to stop nurses from leaving the system, doctors and the rest of the healthcare team, because our our system is about to collapse. Uh, There's no other way. So the premiers were attentive. Uh, we've had many of these breakfasts on different topics on healthcare, and uh, we all said at the end of the meeting they were really listening. And you heard the premier Horgan because he knows it's happening in this province. BC is not any different than any other province. One in two nurses want to leave their job, and yet there's so many. And you were trying to train more nurses. Too. So is this this is something then that we are seeing right across the country? Is it the same situation province after province? Province after province, territory after territory. Uh, and that's one, one of our asks to the premiers yesterday is to support us in pushing the federal government to call a first minister's meeting with all the experts. We need all the experts on health human resource. This is a supply and demand issue. And we need all the premiers sitting at the same table with the prime minister and find out a plan. We don't need another study. We made that clear. We have experts across this country that know how to deal with this. So and then let's continue with some kind of agency, some kind of body in Ottawa that will help the province and territories to be able to deliver the care Canadians deserve. And that that's what we forget. 
we're doing all of this because sick Canadians need our system. And on the flip side, healthy Canadians need a good base of primary health care to stay healthy. So they, they were listening. And uh, right. we hope the political footballing from the federal to the province will stop and we will focus on uh, patient and on health care. What did you think then of Premier Horgan's idea that he talked about there and we heard a bit that we need a, a national recruitment strategy for mm-hmm. health care workers to help I guess, disperse healthcare workers more evenly across the province and, and not, not allow provinces to poach from other provinces? Well, all due respect to Premier Horgan, that's our um, uh, we, uh, we insist, it's up to 70 now national organization in healthcare from dentists to nurses to physician, uh, a year ago signed a call to action to have exactly this, this national health human resource strategy to once and for all deal on how we, how many nurses do we need? How many are retiring? Uh, how many do we need to train the internationally educated nurses? The whole mix, how do we do it with the proper data and the best practice around the world? You know, see me, we do this for the building trades. The building trades has a national organization that started to be fully funded by the federal government. Now it's a mix between business and governments, but we know how many plumbers we need in five years. But you couldn't tell in Canada how many nurses you need in five years. And you all know that the provincial pie of healthcare is between 40, 45% or more. And we don't even know how many nurses we need. So do you think that's progress then towards working on that and working on that issue in particular? Is at least we're talking about that now? Exactly. It is progress. And yesterday we saw uh, light at the end of the tunnels because the premiers were listening. They have to deal it. They go to the grocery stores every day and they hear their neighbors saying, I can't get my hip surgery, my heart treatment, because you might have a surgeon there, but you won't have the specialized healthcare team to take care of the patient. So they hear those stories too, and they want to do something. And uh, it, it goes further than collective bargaining. It's a, about a strategy for the country and making sure that when we respect our healthcare workforce and then we provide Canadians with the highest quality of care possible. Linda, is there a province that you can think of that is working on this? Is there a province that is being proactive on this issue? Nova Scotia is probably the one shining the most, then it's Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, where we're seeing uh, premiers directly involved in the HHR strategy. But in both provinces, they will admit they're grasping from different strategies here and there. What we, uh, our message to premiers yesterday was, you must be frustrated because everyone tried something, you know, from the big bonuses in Quebec, Ontario, uh, and Manitoba, I could go on on the list, but everyone tried this balloon to retain nurses in the system, and it did not work. Personal care workers, big programs to train them, paid work and everything jobs, and they got into the workplace and 60% of them said, I'm out of here. That's a big problem and frustration. So the premiers agreed that we need to work together and find what are the best way to retain, so stop the bleed, return, get those nurses and others back in the system, or those who are working casual work full time, and then recruit. How do we help our students uh, financially, 
uh, with preceptors, clinical preceptors, and the internationally educated health professionals. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. Thank you and stay safe. You too. That's Linda Silas, the head of the Canadian Federation of Nurses, uh, talking about the premier's meetings in Victoria this week, where healthcare is, of course, the big issue on the agenda and how nurses are feeling about that. They want to see a national strategy, too, to help them figure out where we need more nurses and to keep more nurses in the workforce. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, in the last little while, we've been hearing about these serious cyclist and truck crashes in our province. Last week, there was a collision between a biker and a large truck at a pretty busy intersection in Victoria, too. Week before that, it was a 28-year-old UBC economics student who died when the bike that he was riding collided with a large truck at Pacific and Hornby in downtown Vancouver. You probably remember that story. Let's talk more about that this morning, about making improvements in that situation. Our Raji Sohal is with us. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, these crashes are so tragic. And I've just been wondering what is happening because when you drive downtown, you do notice more and more infrastructure has gone up to protect cyclists. They often have their own lane. Uh, it's well marked. But I think sometimes that can provide a sense of false security to cyclists and sometimes to the driver too. Um, and everyone's obviously expected to follow the rules, but then at times people are lax. Uh, there was, for example, ample accurate signage at the intersections in question for uh, the two crashes that you just mentioned there. And yet these collisions, they happened, they're still happening. But in um, in the one that you did mention, the infrastructure that was in place uh, and had been in place for a while. So, you know, if, if both parties had been through that area often, they would know to expect it. Um, for some, that sense of knowing what is ahead uh, will make them maybe, I don't know, too relaxed. But I talked to two cycling associations in the last few weeks. And for the cycling associations, they told me that uh, drivers are not as vig vigilant as the cyclists tend to be. And I think there's a lot that everyone who does not drive a semi-truck could stand to learn about what it's like for the truck driver. So I talked to Dave Earl from BC Trucking Association, and he said the roads would be safer if cyclists and actually even pedestrians and even light vehicles like motorcyclists knew what it was like for the driver of a huge truck trying to navigate downtown. Any congested area, one of the things to remember is that these are extremely large vehicles with very big blind spots. This is why you'll see big mirrors and multiple mirrors on the side of them. Many newer trucks have cameras at various places to give a better view of what's around the vehicle, but they're incredibly difficult to move in tight spaces. For much of the population, they don't understand um, that vehicles uh, that approach and come up the side of big commercial trucks often the driver cannot see them. It's not that they miss them. Um, they're literally invisible. I think one of the other things to keep in mind uh, is as much as it takes time for these large vehicles to accelerate, it also takes a very long time for them to be able to slow down and stop. Um, so giving space and giving these vehicles enough time um, to be able to stop safely is really critical. Very often in congested areas, uh, where a truck is slowing down, you'll see a vehicle dart in front of them and come to a stop in front of them. That vehicle that has cut over in front of them and stopped uh, is really putting themselves at risk because that large vehicle may not be able to stop. 
Um, they take a lot of space and take a lot of skill to maneuver. Um, it's difficult to keep track of light vehicles. It's more difficult to keep track of motorcycles. It's even more difficult to keep track of bicycles and other modes of active transportation uh, that we're not used to seeing. Um, when you and I drive, and, and this is well-established research, when we're moving around in a vehicle, uh, we expect to see other vehicles. We don't expect to see motorcycles and active transportation. It's one of the reasons uh, when you talk to people who've been involved in accidents, they will say, I didn't see them. They literally didn't because part of the way we work as, 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 a, as a human is that we expect to see certain things. And if we don't see it, we discount it. Um, so it's really difficult uh, for drivers to have all that input and all of these things happening at the same time. So uh, like everybody else, uh, they struggle. That is so interesting, Raji, too, like not to mention all the distractions that people have these days while they're in their car. Yeah, and increasingly our cars have become so comfortable offering more and more features for our comfort that people forget they're even driving, I find. Um, you know, you often look over and someone's, you can see that they've got uh, something playing in the background uh, for the kids on video. Maybe they're taking a phone call and whatnot. It's almost as though, yeah, people have become too comfortable. Another thing to mention is that those trucks are really high up. This was an assumption that I made too. I assume that for a driver who's got this kind of aerial view of what's happening, that the height helps them. And uh, I learned that's not true. I think there's a myth um, in that because the driver is up really high, they can see a lot. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, when you look at how high that driver is and the equipment that's around them, um, yes, they can see out further ahead. But as you get closer and closer into the vehicle, it's more and more difficult for them to see objects, people that are close to that commercial vehicle. Um, so far from it being an advantage um, when they're up that high, uh, looking in the, the area immediately around the vehicle, it presents a real challenge with blind spots. Okay, I believe that too. And you know what? We're not just talking about great big trucks here too, because I don't know if you've noticed this, Raji, but pickup trucks these days are getting yeah. bigger and bigger on the front end. I know there's a recent GM pickup truck line where that front grill is huge. And I'm huge. thinking, how can they yeah. see over that? Yeah, yeah, I have noticed that for sure. And now one of the solutions that has been proposed by some of the cycling cycling associations out there is that these big trucks should have mandatory side rails. And what they're hoping for there is that it would prevent a cyclist who was, who was hit by a big truck from going under the, the truck itself. And I thought, yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. They're not that costly. It can run from a hundred, a few hundred dollars to uh, over $1,000. It seems like it'd be a simple fix, but the Trucking Association said it doesn't work for every single truck. And it's not exactly a one-stop solution to regulate that because some trucks uh, will require more clearance under the bed than others because uh, they don't know what kind of varying surfaces they're going to go over. But for other trucks, it does work and it has saved lives. But but it's not a solution across the board. Another thing, since we're talking so much about visibility, because that's the big issue here, uh, is that trucks have to be optimized 
for being aerodynamic. So those mirrors that you see on the side and, and cameras that are increasingly being used, they still have to take into mind the vehicle being aerodynamic. Right. So a lot of this has to do with technology. And, you know, there's always so much finger pointing after these terrible collisions occur. But obviously, uh, it's terrible for the cyclist who gets struck. It's also terrible for the truck driver. Um, yeah, Dave it's traumatizing. Yeah, from the Trucking Association. He told me that uh, for a lot of the drivers afterwards, that's it for them. They're not able to get back in the cab again and and uh, do their work. They're totally traumatized by it. Now, you know that I used to cycle a ton. Um, I don't cycle as much anymore. But um, I have always felt as a cyclist that you need to be indisputably defensive as a as a cyclist on the road you need to pretend that everyone need to play a game where like anyone could hit you at any point and not take it lightly to ride downtown i think you're absolutely right about that raji thank you for that thanks simi this is mornings with simi One year ago, there was a very important agreement that was struck, and this was to provide $10 a day childcare. So where are we after that one year? Where are we still making improvements? Where are we still lacking? Well, we thought, let's check in. Joining us now is Sharon Gregson, childcare advocate, who I know worked long and hard on making this idea happen. Hi, Sharon. Hello, Sammy. Good morning. Good morning to you. So how are you feeling after it's been one year since the whole deal was signed? So I think when you're on a a 10-year plan to create a brand new system, we have to celebrate the victories along the way while recognizing the amount of work that's still to be done. So absolutely, there has been significant progress, particularly since 2018. But the agreement last year really meant that the feds were now at the table as they should be in building the new childcare system that families and the economy needs. Okay, so how close are we, do you think? Or where were we still needing to make progress? So when the agreement was signed, we only had about 2,500 spaces in BC that were $10 a day. Now, by the end of this year, we'll have 12,500. So getting up to about 10% of all the ch- licensed childcare in the province. So that's not anywhere near enough. So the other good thing that's happening because of the agreement is that even for families who are not lucky enough to yet be in a $10 a day site, their fees will be reduced to an average of $20 a day by the end of this year. And that's because of this new federal funding. So this is a good time for for parents to ask their child care provider, are you going to apply to bring down fees to that average of $20 a day by the end of this year? So do you think that, so the onus is on, you know, to ask the child care providers to get in on this? That's right. So it's not the parents who apply to have the fees reduced in this case. It's actually the child care providers apply. So when they apply, they agree that they'll get the, the new public money and that they'll use it to reduce parent fees. So there's an accountability measure there. So the affordability piece is really improving for families this year. Um, there's a wage enhancement of $4 an hour that um, was being paid out to early childhood educators but that's not enough to deal with the labor shortages and the recruitment and retention issues. So we're calling for the wage grid that's promised in that federal agreement to be um, not just developed, but implemented to improve wages and working conditions in the sector. So are there childcare providers, Sharon, who don't want to sign on to the plan? I know there have been some stories out of Ontario about that. Is that a concern here? 
yes, it is a concern. Um, often the for-profit providers um, are cautious about um, what government has planned for developing a $10 a day system. And in some cases, um, it's because there isn't enough information coming from government, but in some cases, it's because they were happy with the status quo, a very high demand market and low supply, and so they could charge you know, high fees and create profit to buy private assets. And when we're thinking about how we use public money to build a, a childcare system, it's the same way we want our schools and libraries and healthcare system to be actually putting taxpayer dollars into services. And so people are, some people are leery about that because it's a big change and they don't know what to expect. Right. And that, that's the concern, right? Because this is big change, but it's in years in the coming. And I would think that most parents would want to get in on this, wouldn't they? I have not yet met a parent of young children, 0 to 12, who does not want to have access to a $10 a day childcare program. And I have to stress it's maximum $10 a day. So for families who are low income or have other significant barriers, there'll be no fee at all. Um, So maximum $10 a day, it makes sense for families so that their entire budget in a high housing cost environment is not, you know, split between childcare and housing, making it impossible to to even go to work. Right. Now, Sharon, you seem very practical about this, about the pace that this is going at, but does it get frustrating sometimes for you? Because I know you've been talking about this for decades. Yes, we launched the $10 a day plan with the Early Childhood Educators of BC back in 2011. Uh, So it's been 11 years. Um, If government had started to implement this plan when we first launched it, we would be much further ahead. But now we've got a provincial government committed, a federal government committing $3.2 billion. Um, The uh, large swaths of the sector are really keen to make this change. Parents want it. People are voting for it. So it is going to happen. Okay, so it is going to happen. Where do you think this is needed most, Sharon? Are there certain areas of Metro Vancouver in particular that you think we need to get more places online? Well, we've already got $10 a day sites um, across Metro Vancouver, um, but of course they have long waiting lists. And so it's just like we need elementary schools everywhere. We need $10 a day childcare everywhere too. Um, and we don't want to just target specific areas. We want this to be available for all families. But we recognize that there are some communities that don't have any 10 a day childcare yet that need it. So a rapid expansion is really necessary. And the commitment is to have that by April 2026 across the province. Okay, so then once again, what is your advice to parents? And they probably hear and see all these stories about $10 a day childcare, but they wonder when is it going to impact them? So the application process is open right now. So it's a good time for parents to ask their childcare provider, are you applying to be a $10 a day site? And if not, are you going to apply to be a $20 a day site? Um, because those are the affordability measures that are happening here and now and, and will be in place by the end of the year. Okay, so work to do. Sharon, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That's Sharon Gregson, longtime child care advocate, talking about the one-year anniversary of the deal that was struck when it came to early learning and child care here in BC. It is a partnership between the province, the federal government. Uh, BC is still kind of creeping its way towards making more 10 and $20 a day childcare available to parents out there. And I'm sure it's frustrating for parents when you hear those stories in the news and you think, yes, I want that. I need that. 
to help make my family budget more affordable, but is it maybe not available or you're on waiting lists? It's, it is tough out there finding childcare, good childcare for your kids. 